Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made for and by changemakers, where we gain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. I am your host, Lucas Grobot, and today joining us is Sarah El Akbarubi, who is part of the Banat Collective and the founders of The Letters Project, if you have seen that floating around your Instagram feed. And we talk a lot, and it starts off right in the beginning of the episode and is woven all the way through of this idea of our identity, our individual uniqueness, and how that is layered and carved out through not only our biological makeup, but our family line and the different subgroups of of culture that we're a part of. And at the very end, I'm going to give it away, but at the very end, um, we at least I think, we land on the fact that each and every one of us, you and I, we all want to be seen and known by name. That it's not enough just to be a part of a collective. It's not enough to be a, a, you know, one pixel in the midst of a huge sea and mass of culture and people and crowd. But each and every one of us have this longing deep inside of us to carve out a space in history, to carve out an, a, a space in our identity, to discover who we are, and then to be seen and known by other people, that connectivity of knowing who we are, our identity. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Own the Future, where we're, we really hone in on the courage to own our stories. And you pronounce your name Sara El Ruby, right? Yeah, sure. No? How would you pronounce your name? Uh, it's kind of hard. Do, is it Sarah uh, or is it Sara? I grew up with Sarah, and I think that's just because of, you know, my school. Whitewash and colonialism? Pretty much. Um, yeah, I grew up with Sarah. Um, and my mom, in front of friends, would say Sarah, and then sometimes she would say Sara. Um, I've had somebody called me Sora, and I don't know where that came from. But it's, yeah, Sara Al-Agrubi. 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 You could say Al-Agrubi. Is it a Ghain or is it's, it Qaf? It's, it, it's, it's, Al-Agrubi? It can be both. It can be non-binary. It can be whatever you want it to be. Well, when it's written in the Arab language. Yeah. What letter it's is it? It's a Qaf. It's a Qaf. Yeah. So then I guess it depends on what Arab nation you're from then dictate how you're gonna pretty much yeah. yeah but that's that's the sort of family extension that tribal name is el suedi so okay that's like a different conversation so it'd be sara el agrubi suedi gotcha yes take that yes write it down so but you go Boom. by el agrubi el agrubi yeah but not for long <laughs> until they oh, decide yeah. to like you know, why not for long? Um, I think they are. Uh, I think the UAE is um, homogenizing the the last names and associating the family tree with the passports. So, over, I think the next time around we will be Al Agrubi Swedi. So I guess legally my last name will be, be hyphenated. Or uh, no, no, it will be double, not double barrel, but double barrel in its own right for Al Agrubi and then Al Swedi. So it's almost like Al Agrubi is a middle name of some kind if that even makes sense i don't even know as well like what do you think about because you use the word homogenizing 
which yes. seems to be a loaded kind of sure for you. Bring it on, yes. What do you feel about that word? And what do you feel about like when you say that word? What do you mean? And what are kind of the subcontexts that are attached to that word for you? Well, homogenizing in itself is the notion of another word, neutralizing or um, systematically um, synthesizing mm-hmm. um, a certain categ- state of categories or or um, groups or, um, or you know whatever the case may be. So it's synthesis the synthesis of um, subdivisions that will automatically neutralize to the point where there is a sense of uh, uniformity. Uniformity. That's the kind of word that I was getting to. And that is one of the things that has has been one of the strengths of UAE and also arguably maybe some of the weakness of UAE where they where I believe it was Sheikh Zayed, he took the tribes and he began to homogenize well, when he created uniform dress yes. mm-hmm. where and brought in the school system to kind of build a unified sense between all these tribes. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. One could say, yes. How do you view that? How do you view the what story aspect, line? What aspect, though? In terms of what? I mean, because the, the the unification the, of the country, the, the crucial of stage the, of the country, yeah. like coming in, federation. Yeah. Uh, so we're going way back. We're rolling it way back. Well, I, okay, so I, I don't know how we could have... I mean, maybe we should, we're starting it at the really at the yeah, deep end, just, yeah. um, but that's okay. I don't know how you can have the the conversation that you are are provoking within society. Am I? I think. Murdy. Or you're creating a, a platform, and I'm using provoking in a good way. Okay. Um, it seems like the things that you talk about requires the necessity to go back to some of the origins to understand the framework that you're speaking into um, rather than just kind of talking about this 2019 moment, right? Yeah. As an artist, it seems like you're you're pointing back to something that happened long ago and you're pulling a thread into 2019. So how can we understand the 2019 thread without understanding the larger trajectory of what got this nation to where it is and um the the arab peoples into the the state that it is today well because th- a lot of what you're talking about is identity right yeah well it depends on which angle you're coming from so if you're addressing identity as this kind of uh concept that we can begin to unpack and dismantle these ideologies that's one thing but then if you're viewing identity within a vacuous container um and saying okay this is how it was said year ago or 50 whatever years ago and now we're kind of catapulting in 2019 and redefining or reassessing what identity is we have to first define what the parameters are for this discussion so where from what how would you define those parameters because obviously it's not in a vacuum that's true but then again my parameters for this discussion are mine and mine alone because they're my perception yet but they don't speak for the wider collective it's of course through personal opinion mm. i if if we want to talk about identity from that aspect then yes um we can begin to unpack how myself 
maybe a handful of people might agree or disagree, that my understanding of identity is this re this regurgitation of this frozen nostalgia that we constantly perpetuate through media. Mm. So it's the sense of this is how you look like, this is how you're supposed to act, this is how you're supposed to sound, um, and this is how you're supposed to self-identify. Uh, whilst for me, for example, uh, let's uh, let's break down those five things that I said. So the way we act, okay, well, one would argue that those who are, you know, Emirati are... Are less, um, you know, erratic or highbrow or uh, controversial or evocative in their own way. Mm -hmm. So that already eliminates that factor. Uh, the way they sound. Uh, I mean, whenever I speak, people don't associate me as an Arab, let alone as an Emirati, whether it's English. And in Arabic, I speak uh, with a Syrian accent. So I don't speak with an Emirati accent. So that eliminates that aspect. Um, the way I dress, I mean, jeans and a t-shirt mm -hmm. or whether in formal events with the abaye, um, you know, that can also be debatable. So that eliminates that part. And then the last one that I said, I think, I can't remember what it was, but so far we've eliminated four of the five said rules that one should follow being Emirati. So already from that uh, sort of cup, coupling those five yeah. things that I've mentioned, you already have a recipe for, you know, sociocultural disaster because I'm already starting to unpack those elements. And isn't that true, though, for that could be said for nearly every culture? Of course. But I think it's different when you take the UAE, which is, first of all, I mean, just to put it in perspective, my um, my father is older than the country. Right. So that should already gain some kind of perspective. And 40 years ago, there was there were no roads, no Ex infrastructure. Uh Maybe one school, maybe one hospital, mm -hmm. and so. So this is all sprung up within forty-five, fifty of years, course. and it's 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 amazing, it's fascinating, and also we cannot discredit what the UAE has gone through in terms of its, you know, galvanizing changes that have taken place. Incredible, it, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing, but we also have to see from the perspective of anthropology or or sociocultural constructs, how that has a profound effect on the way that society is growing as a whole. Um, and it's actually really funny because I was, I was reading something a couple of days ago and I just thought of it now as we're sitting down. So uh, Giles, Giles Deleuze wrote this, um, I can't, postscripts of something to do with uh, society. And he mentions on how, like, all of these external things that contribute to the way that society sort of uh, continues to evolve or uh, or change and or manifest in its own way, um, we see ourselves as individual. But actually, society is way more complex than that, where there is no such thing as um, having these, uh, you know, different striations of culture that come into identity to make you individual you actually are a subdivision of that so you are no longer individual you are just individual which is in a way um sort of uh, uh looking at the this idea that you know no one is completely unique or no one is will will ever kind of pull away from whatever society has asked of them whether it be through social conformity um social conditioning, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, we will never completely be able to divorce ourselves from that because as 
as human beings, we naturally want to assimilate. We want to uh, bond and we want to collectively group together to form some kind of connection. So, but you're not a part of just one group, though. Yeah, of course. But then if we, because it goes back to that question that you were asking about identity. Mm -hmm. So you said that I'm kind of provoking whatever's happening now. But well, at e least you're, you're laying a framework for that which is already underneath the surface to have some space to bubble up. Exactly. I am just providing a different perspective mm -hmm. that does exist. And I think that perspective for a long time, whether it's because of the social stigma associated to it or social norms and values associated to it, was often marginalized. This idea that, you know, you can be... And I don't mean liberated, because that's also a very divisive word. I mean liberated of mind and of thought and um, and to think in a way which doesn't go in line with the status quo, that m maybe kind of goes against the grain. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, with my art and my practice, uh, I do bring up conversations like uh, white male supremacy, like, um, uh, you know, neocolonialism, mm -hmm. like... Uh, the sort of overtake or the underpinning of of Western ideologies being, you know, uh, enforced onto the existing culture. Um, I do bring those up, but not as a as a way to kind of uh, create a polarizing argument, but more along the sides to provide another narrative to the existing one. So, so going back to this thing of identity and identity, I, ha I had a couple questions there. Individual and individual. Individual, is that what it was? A individual, individual. Um, you're saying that as an individual, that uniqueness is not possible. Is that mm -hmm. what he was arguing? Yes. And I would, I think I would press back on that based on your opening argument mm. of your uniqueness. I mean, I mean, you made the assumption of my uniqueness. You need to now, you need well, to now. Because well, well, in in this, because we were talking about the homogenization, and then you were pointing out how. You are Emirati. I am. But you don't fit the quote-unquote stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And they are stereotypes. And they That's are what they stereotypes. Are. Yeah. And we all exist, like you are part of hundreds if not thousands of subgroups of cultures. And you exist along multiple intersections of those cultures, right? So you are, not only are you a woman, but you're Emirati and you, you're half Syrian mm -hmm. and so there, when you lay all those out with your background, with your level of expertise, which with the subgroups that you're a part of, like even like the Banat Collective, mm -hmm. I think you could probably make a pretty solid argument of individuality of you as an individual based off of the combination of the multiple lines that you cross, the multiple subcultures that you cross. Yes and no. I think... Um the ethnic background of the fact that I'm half Emirati, that is something that is maybe maybe a borrowed or collective, um, you know, uh, like point to my character because there are a lot of half Emiratis out there. You know, they're hiding in the bushes, but we, they, they do exist. And um, so, and I mean, from the Letters Project, you can see a lot of them do exist and the stories about being half Emirati do resonate with a lot of people. Um, but I think maybe the uniqueness that you think of or that you're addressing outside of that is the fact that I didn't grow up in the UAE. So I, I think there's, I think that 
and again, this maybe goes back to the parameters that you're talking about. Mm. Are you talking about your personal personality, mm-hmm. individuality? Mm-hmm. And are you making the, is he making the argument that there's no such thing as deve- as an individual? individual. Mm-hmm. But then at, that seems to lend to identity politics. Yes. Which is, which is extremely the, destructive. Yeah, of course. Because, you know, in identity politics, there's this play of the oppressor and the oppressed of the victim and the victimizer. Yes. Where, well, that's just one way that you cut the pie mm-hmm. in identity politics. And we can easily slice that pie somewhere else. And all of a sudden, the victim is now the victimizer. Mm-hmm. And so I think the identity politics falls apart in my mind. And then the the therefore the argument of saying we are all not individuals, just individual, part of a collective. I would agree that we're all part of multiple subcultures and subgroups. Um, but I feel like it's, and again, this maybe it's my Western worldview of, you know, English common law where the individual is the uh, manifestation of the collective. Yes, but, I mean, if you do want to come in with the sort of common law, yes, I mean, I can agree, but then I disagree because we're not coming from that perspective. We are seeing this through the lens of the UAE, which is that those who um, um, choose to live outside the the norms and the values set by what society asks of you, they are deviant in that aspect Mm. um and so maybe in the in the west that is something so normal everyone is individual in their own right because you have freedom of speech freedom of action all of those different things but within this context if we're speaking contextually in the uae then yes you could see that as a unique aspect or being individual but i think if we were to examine the nuances of that i mean Society is very much a reflection of who we are, and then we in turn are the reflection of society. So, um, but then that makes that argument that we are individual. We are always uh, a division of what society throws at us, and then also what we can give back. So, in a way, we're we're both agreeing with each other, but there is a different. Exactly, I would say even in that the way that you framed it of, you know, we are a mirror of society, society is a mirror of us. Yes. If I said that correctly. Mm-hmm. And that we're a individual, we're a, a divider of society, but isn't there the argument of we are a unique individual? Because you as a individual is different than the next, you know, half Emirati, half American but, from Connecticut. Yeah, but then again, it makes the argument that being individual or individual is not an absolute. It's by which standards do you measure? So, for example, according to you, yes, we can make the argument that you might see me through your own perspective as individual or unique within this given context. But for me, viewing, for example, uh, people that I know and I... um and I hang out with, with on a regular basis and are very much an echo of who I am, I am no longer an individual within that sphere because they are very much, we are woven from the same cloth. We are of mm-hmm. the same ilk. So in a way, it kind of, if, if you're, okay, well, for, for argument's sake, we can say that in relation to the entire country, <laughs> um, 
both within the context of the UAE and the surrounding cultures that exist within the UAE. And the UAE, UAE's like identity fabric, yes, there is an aspect of individuality. Because I, I feel like, I know we belabored this point a little bit, but I feel... Mm-hmm. Just as you said in the beginning, we yeah. need to lay some sort of framework yeah. to even begin to understand. Otherwise, it, it, sometimes it feels like we're falling into such a deconstructive narrative that yes. it's all chaos. And then it's like, it's all relative in and the then, end. Yeah, so like, what is life? So Who, why are we even, what, what, why are we even why here? Why does anyone, why even have a conversation? Exactly. Why even, and which is, then it why tends do we exist? denialism, you know, right? Exactly. So, and we don't want to go there, I don't think. Yeah. Um. But I think it's important that we did belabor this point because even though we're talking about the UAE and you're you're bringing it back to that because that is the topic at hand, mm-hmm. I think you made a very interesting and prevalent prevalent point, meaningful point of and the surrounding nations and the surrounding. And so in some ways, it's as if we're talking about a global, we're setting global identity like we're talking about on a much broader scale than just UAE to set some sort of axiom or understanding to then look at a smaller microcosm of what's happening yeah. globally, especially with the interconnectivity due to the internet and our mobile phones and social media. Definitely, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, I concur. <laughs> I mean, because the same could be argued with America. I'm half Polish, mm-hmm. right? So what's my identity? Mm-hmm. Am I Polish or am I American, even though I've never been to Poland? I don't know a single Polish word. Like there's still that that identity. And I grew up moving around a lot as well. So then I I often go back for myself in my own personal inner world of who am I? What is my identity? And uh, for the first you know, for the first time in history, for the last 150 years, as a collective, as a society, we're asking, who are we? Mm-hmm. What are we going to yes. do and how are we going to get there? And that is a massive uh, cultural change. And so I think that's maybe one of the reasons that so many people are having this conversation within themselves and within their homes and within their tr- tribes and within their countries. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think going back to that point of you saying like, you know, where, who are we and, and all all of that jazz. Um, a lot of the times, I can't remember where I was reading this, but uh, something that I read along the lines of, you know, when people ask you like, oh, where are you from? Yeah. Like, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Um, the question shouldn't be like, where are you from? But where are you going? Because the aspect of, uh, because we are, we are sort of, um, we're a sort of global melting pot mm-hmm. now and we're becoming more of this kind of globalized, uh, international, multidisciplinary, um, diverse uh, group of beings that it no longer matters where are you from because you are co- in this constant uh, limbo state of, of transience. Like you're, you're a transient nomad. Yeah. Uh, you're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Um but I think it goes back to this point of uh, what you were trying to, I think, allude to about my practice as an artist. Um, I, You have decided maybe where you want to go or who you are as a person being half Polish, but not everyone enjoys this idea of unpacking the sense of self or going through an existential crisis of, you know, who am I? Totally. What is the larger picture? Totally. 
they they don't often at times don't have that. And that's okay, right? It, exactly. Yeah. But I think here, it's ve- where you are from ethnically and what you represent in the UAE in this in country, the UAE, in this region. In the UAE, it is very much um, uh, uh, a point of. Uh, uh, like I don't know contingency maybe, but it's 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 very much a point of of reference where mm. it, it's a point of departure for how things will manifest. So, who you are, what your name is, what your family background is, what your ethnic background is, what is wh- where do you work, uh, all, your net worth, all all of these different things, mm. um, they play a, a a huge role in the way that people uh, interact interact Absolutely. with you. Absolutely, and so absolutely. So then that, I've experienced that. I'm sure. From the yeah. you know, outside in, I've experienced Being an that. American, yeah. coming in well, it's, with your thoughts. Well, not only American, but what do you, how do you address all these things mm-hmm. are really important here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, why? Why what? Why is that the case? And is, are, you, is that, are you stating that as kind of a factual thing? Or is there a kind of a narrative that you're also kind of trying to point to with that, I think we can pull it way back uh, and say that you know we often fear what we don't know. So we come from a from a simple perspective of curiosity, and also that's coupled with fear. So you know, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, what are you about? So I can make radical assumptions about you uh, based on nothing but preconceived notions that I have already built up in my mind. But yeah. at least that saves me the hassle. Of um, or saves me this filtration process or this deconstructive reasoning on how to deal with this interaction that we have. So it's prevalent here because social status is very much equated to the ethnicity um, or the tribe to which you belong to or whatever the case may be. And those s- social uh, structures are defined by your background or your family or or your net worth or and uh, mm-hmm. um, and so. Um, but that seems to be the. It seems that you're making a case then of saying, I, the way you frame that, that didn't seem a very positive reasoning for why that is. It seems of course, like, it's not positive. So then, doesn't that make a case for the individual? Because in order for us to move past that kind of group group mm. grouping. Right. Where are you from? Okay, you're well, I can make some assumptions about you because you're half Emirati, you're half Syrian. Mm -hmm. uh, You grew up in all over in Brussels and Turkey. Mm -hmm. Um, You went to the University of Sharjah and you studied in London. So American University of Sharjah. American University Mm. of Sharjah. So sorry. Um, (laughs) Huge difference. The Sharjodians out there will be up in arms. (laughs) Right. So. But it seems that you're making the argument of like, okay, great, we can do that. But it doesn't actually serve you or the person that you just stereotyped. You actually have to go past your perceived conceptions about who an individual is and how they should look. And you have to begin to interact with them on the level of the individual, the level of, well, who are you as a human being, as a person not just how can I make broad sweeping assumptions about who you are based on your 
your tribe, your family name, your ethnicity, and your education. Yeah, but I don't think it's um, I I don't use the term individual for the for the individual per se. I I use the term as a way to self-identify and to remove yourself from all of the uh, systemic, like, perpetuated belief system that has been handed down from generation to generation that has forced you to have these viewpoints. So one could say, I make assumptions about said individual because they are from the West, so I have these preconceived notions, or this person from the Daisy, the Daisy community, or whatever the case may be. So those are not things that I have self-conjured. They are systemic beliefs yeah. that have, and norms and values that have been set down, whether it's uh, culturally um, or through my environment, or whether it's from generation to generation. So it is my job as the individual to take the moral, like to take the the social responsibility to eradicate those thoughts or at least move past them as often as possible. And that has to do with self-awareness. Mm. So individual from the from the perspective of self-awareness, yes. Individual from the sense of like uniqueness, not so much because um, I think it, it, it's very much a fluid term and it's, uh, it's a term that can be identified by the masses. Your vision of you know, uniqueness and individuality or whatnot is very different to mine or could be on the same level. But it's awareness, individuality through awareness. And that goes back to what I was saying previously, which is that um, having these moral or ethical belief systems forced onto you um, by your environment has very much to do with the way that society has dictated how you should perceive yourself self-identify and how you should perceive others yes so what yes. you're saying is if i'm hearing and i'm going to try to synthesize this for the try. listener i'm going to definitely try i'll probably not get it straight but i'm going to try to get 80 okay. percent there right all right so what i hear you saying is that it is our responsibility to step into self-awareness about ourselves and the people around us. Yes. I wanted to use the word individual, but I restrained. Yeah, see? You fall into that trap. I don't think it's a trap. I think, I because th it is, it's a, you know, again, it's the definition of how you're defining individual, but mm -hmm. really if it's a, a single unit person, however you want to say, that person in front of me, having self-awareness to not just see them through the cultural lenses and norms that have been assumed based on media and family family and yeah you know, whatever yeah what what conversations you heard at exactly. the dinner table or with your friends or on stereotypes that you saw on tv or radio or whatever mm -hmm. growing up that we need to suspend those and see the person for who for who they are yes and it's a lot it's easier said than done because you have to um, sort of pull out all of these knots or go through a teething process of eliminating all of those um, preconceived notions about an individual. Um, see, I used it for you. I feel so liberated there we go. Right now. You, yeah. <laughs> as, a, as an individual. But um, 
it's it's easier said than done because we are not from um, a society that openly articulates or discusses all of these, you know, uh, unique um, side cultural like tropes and uh, you know all of these different kind of nuances that exist within our subcultures that exist within our society actually they're coming up very much now um, but before they were very much frowned upon it was seen as very much stigmatized and so you can have that open conversation but it's very hard to remove uh, and unlearn all of those um, those you know those those points that 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 have been passed down. And I and I think that, I mean, I, for one, still struggle with them all the time. Um, and I think we fall or we slip back into these patterns of, of saying something uh, that you have to catch yourself on. But, you know, you live and learn. But once again, it goes back to that awareness, that self-awareness and, uh, and, and identifying somebody, not from where they are, the color of their skin or their social economic background, but who they are as human beings, mm. uh, basically breaking it down to the root of, of that. Yeah. I, I fully, I fully agree. And I think that is how we ought to live. The question that springs up into my mind, and I'm definitely not asking it from the perspective of thinking that this is a better way. I don't think it is mm. a better way. But isn't part of it, don't we do that because as humans, every day we have so much information coming at us about the world that we have to quickly categorize and create a, a, a hierarchy of placing people and objects and events into a framework so that we can function normally throughout our lives rather than being paralyzed, trying to understand each event and the meaning of each event and each individual, uh, is this a safe or dangerous person? Is this a safe or dangerous? Yes. So isn't part of it, I, I mean, I don't think I'm necessarily a evolutionary biologist. I don't think that's really my worldview, but stealing from that, even from the last, you know, 10, whatever thousand years of human history that mm. we have recorded, haven't we in some ways as as humanity haven't we developed those frameworks in order for us to function as human beings to function in society to have the ability to move forward and that part of it it's a it's a safety mechanism that we have learned as humans to be able to protect ourselves of course i mean it goes back to what i was saying um just a just a few minutes ago which is that it comes from two perspectives, from curiosity and from fear. So we fear what we don't know, and we try to find the things that unite us rather than divides mm -hmm. us. And those commonalities shape that preconceived notion that we've already built, built up in our minds. But I think going back to here mm -hmm. within the culture or cultural context of the UAE, it is a way to self-identify but it is also a way to position yourself within a given framework. So whether that be socially, culturally, um, financially, um, on that sort of social tier or social structure. So much jockeying for position, you're saying. Pretty much, yes. Right. Um, but here, because of these rooted cultural norms that are 
you know, just just heavily rooted in, in value and um, and uh, you know honor and uh, all of these uh, you know um, amazing kind of qualities. There is this huge injection of Westernized culture that and wealth and affluency that just kind of came in and overwhelmed that sense of security mm. of honor and and um, you know. Uh, uh, sort of uh, cultural connection, uh, and then out of that bore privilege, mm. and then privilege comes in all day, every day, um, as we like to call wasta, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when you have these um, sort of old values and these cultural norms that you've had passed down from generation to generation, and then you have this hit of um, uh, affluency or economic wealth, it bores a certain type of person or people that um, feel they are entitled, inherently entitled, mm -hmm. to do, say, act, or think however they like. And so when it goes back to what you were saying previously about this idea of, you know, kind of kicking up, a, um, like causing a bit of a ruckus within society, whether it's through my art or through, you know, the collective or whatever the case may be, that tries to eliminate or stay clear as far as possible from the notion of privilege and entitlement. It's actually breaking it down to the root and going back to those original norms and values that we sh that we so graciously kind of abandoned in in favor of this new kind of affluency. So 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 many thoughts. <laughs> I'm trying to like I'm trying to synthesize this is, the direction. Yeah. This is great. Um I want to take a tangent and I think sure. we're going to circle right back to this point. Sure. You're one of your latest art pieces or collections. Okay. It's you you for four months, you took multiple canvases mm -hmm. and you slathered paint every day, let it dry, another layer of paint, another layer of paint. Mm -hmm. And then you have this amazing video on your feed where you're, you know, you're cutting all these layers of paint. It looks very uh, therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It was. And you create this amazing artwork. What is your, I know every art is so subjective. Mm -hmm. And I can look at it and I can take something from it. So yeah. I'm not going to say what I, when I see it, what I see and feel and read or understand. Mm -hmm. I want to know what were you, what is it, what is the value to you? What is it subjectively to you as the creator of this, these, this art collection, these art pieces, what are you communicating? That's a really interesting question, and I think um, it's definitely on a spectrum. You'll have artists that clearly communicate uh, whatever their intention behind the work was or the, their purpose or reasoning, um, and then there's those who wish to just kind of have a discourse with somebody and create that dialogue, um, regardless of what their initial thought process was to begin with. And you're probably more the latter. I'm sort of a happy medium, I think, and I teeter between the two thresholds. Um, and for me, that process of creating those those canvases where I, I carve out 100 layers uh, came at a very uh, difficult time 
where I was really struggling to make work. I felt that I had lost the world to live as an artist. Who am I? I was having an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. What am I doing in life? Am I ever going to be a ex- successful artist? Does anyone care? Why care? Nobody Just cares. Just entitlement, right? Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. And so I noticed um, I didn't have a lot of time to create work. Mm. I was, you know, working a... Um, a full-time job. I had a lot of other obligations and responsibilities. I just did not have time to do work. But then I told myself, well, hold on, going back to that notion of self-awareness and um, and how you identify yourself. I, 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 I proudly self-identified as an artist. I was like, I am first and foremost an artist, but what am I actually doing? Or if I'm a, a painter or it's like a the sculpt- writer that never writes. Exactly. And so... I wanted to take the concept of time and use that to my advantage. Um, Taking your limitations and making it a strength. Exactly. So the layers take um, anywhere between 10 hours to 30 hours to dry, depending on the color, the viscosity of the acrylic paint that I used. Um, When I applied the layer of paint, if it was during the day, the sun would have a profound effect on the way that it dried or didn't dry. Um, And so... Doing one layer, dedicating sort of, I think it was a total of five minutes to do a layer of paint on these six canvases and just walking away and having that special time where where time stood still and I was focused on this very meditative um, act of, this ritualistic act mm-hmm. of just applying uh, paint to canvas. There was no rhyme or reason. It was just one act. Um, became so spiritual and so... Um, you know, so uh, calm and serene, and 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 it really centered my sense of self. I had I, I I virtually thought of nothing and everything at the same time when I was doing it. So, um, and I would do it in silence as well. It became like this sort of prayer, this ritualistic prayer. Um, once I did the layer, I would leave, go about my day, um, let it dry, and then come back to it at the same time the next day. And I did this every single day for about a, over 100 days because there's 100 layers of paint. Um, Technical question. If a layer took 30 hours to dry, would you still paint the next layer at the same time the next day when it's still not dried yet? Or would you wait, you know, I would two wait, days? which is why I say relatively 100 okay. days, give or take, because um, it was probably like 110 days or something. Um, and what, what that does is that it eliminates the fear that I have of not producing mm-hmm. artwork because I existed in that time and space in front of that canvas, applying that paint. And so I knew that once I left that place, I would return there once again. So whatever happened in between that, those intervals of, uh, let's just say... 24 hours. 24 hours. But I mean, going about my day, going to work, going to eat, doing things like that, it... it rendered insignificant because I was always going to come back to the one thing that I wanted to do. Because you knew that you were still in the process of creating when you weren't in front of that canvas. Yes. And so I was thinking about it constantly. I was, uh, you know, consumed with, you know, what colors were I, was I going to mm-hmm. use? Um, did the paint dry? I, I, I became obsessed with the, as I said, viscosity of the paint. Is it too thick or too thin? Why was red taking forever to dry and then these colors developed personalities for me i knew how they behaved i i started to really understand 
their their performance. Mm. They became part of this dialogue, this inner dialogue that I was having with myself with this spiritual moment of actually applying this ritualistic, you know, time and, and you know, time it took to, to create these works, but also this outer kind of monologue that I was having in the presence of these paintings, um, deciding like, how long is this going to take? How is this going to manifest? Will I remember layer 35 or layer 10? And would it even matter? But then, because I knew the process of layering these these paints to to create this bed of acrylic was eventually going to be a process of excavation. I was going to carve the paint out. Mm-hmm. So this subtractive process was revealing whatever was concealed, using time as a vehicle to communicate this kind of inner struggle that I was going through. So even though this was a long-winded answer, it very much was a path of self-discovery where I'm still understanding what it meant to create that work. And that's where I feel like as an artist, things really start to kind of happen because I think a lot of people don't know this, but that process of making was born out of an accident that happened. Um, it was, uh, I, I, I used a, a piece of, of plywood and I wanted to create these kind of like striations and these serial planes. And um, instead of using um, a, a sort of a vector-based cut, which most machines would do, um, I used like a, a, a raster-based cut. So we would cut the indentations and depressions in a surface. So all of a sudden you had this like, articulated map on the surface of this piece of wood um, that all of a sudden was communicating something entirely different to what I thought it was going to do. And then I thought to myself, well, this is, this wood. Because you can now see the different layers of plywood. Exactly. And you physically see the depth and the, the sense of space that's created within that, that, that wood framework. Um, Where instead of it being a 2D plane, all of a sudden you have a 3D kind yes. of narrative that is being it, told within the wood. Exactly. It's a, it's a language. It's a language of communication. And then I just became fascinated with it. And so I wanted to create my own layers. So I, I played with, you know, uh, blocks of uh, different colored paper and MDF. And then I used sometimes oil. And then I went into resin. I used uh, high gloss resin, which took several hours to dry. And then I had, you know, I used acrylic paint. And then... um. I, I remember thinking, which made me laugh um, uh, uh, halfway through the process, which was that I always complained that I never had time to do these these works because even though I loved doing them, they took so much time. And now time is v- virtually, you know, in the palm of my hands. I can take as long as I want, whenever I want, because I respect the integrity of the paint. I I understand the way I honor the paint. I allow it to dry when it needs to dry. So if the canvas is going to take five weeks to complete, so be it. If it's going to take five months, a year, then so be it. Mm -hmm. So that is really the process of making that kind of started this whole journey. Seems like a very metaphysical kind of extension or story. Always. (laughs) um, That, and again, maybe this is my own personal reading of your narrative, Mm. but it seems to tie into a lot of things you talk about, things that we have been talking about, um, not only for 
for us as individuals. As you could say human, it. as it's individuals, fine. it's I just not a haram word. We can use it, boys and girls. It's fine. As an individual, and then also for all of history, and you know, as talking about the, a person first, we are the makeup of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations before us. Mm-hmm. You know, written, encoded in our DNA, and that each generation happened for a moment, but then it sat for a hundred years. It sat for and became this bedrock embedded in who we are. And then it was another layer and another layer and another layer. Even how history has unfolded and society has unfolded, there are these um, flashpoints and moments that then have dried into a, a piece of our cultural narrative that has become layered on top of each other for thousands of years to lead us to today it seems to me from what we've been talking about that instead of reading that that one layer of paint that's on the top, mm-hmm. that we have to subtract, we have to explore, we have to be self-aware of what are all the other layers within a person? What are all the other layers within a society? What are all the other layers within history that may yeah. be hidden underneath that? first layer of paint mm-hmm. and you have to dig in and explore and it creates this multifaceted um, story of each person and of each society. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Definitely. Um, my practice has very much been about uncovering or deciphering or <sighs> reclaiming my sense of self or my sense of identity. And the reason why I'm sort of not so caught up in the moment of it being a right or wrong answer, if there even is one, is because it's constantly in the state of evolution. It's constantly in the state of of growing and evolving and doing all kinds of different things. So um, who I am now is not who I'm going to be tomorrow and it's not the person I was yesterday. So... um, it very much is, I think, selfishly uh, a process of me um, going on this journey of self-mastery or finding my sense of self mm. through my practice. And I say selfishly because I think I and I've and I've kind of always said this, I think to be an artist is is um, is a privilege. Um, and uh, especially in this day and age. Uh, of being able to express yourself visually or, or however however means you choose or how you see fit is is a privilege to do so. Um, and not everyone has that luxury or that privilege. So, yes, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying before. I feel like all these tangents kind of uh, intersect with each other. Um, that, you know, I self, self-identify as an artist. Um, because I'm continuing to to critique um, how I, whether or not I can see myself carving out a place for me to exist within the sphere. And I think ultimately um, I might find that answer or I might never find it, but at least I'm going on that journey. So maybe in five, 10, 15 years from now, what I'm currently interested in as an artist will cease to excite me or will um, spark that curiosity that I have within me. Um, but maybe it might, it, you know, 
It might not. Maybe I'll, I'll do this till the day I die, but I really have no idea. All I know is that this is a continuous path that I've chosen to go on from a position of privilege. Um, mm. And I am allowing for myself to be um, a point of criticism and constructive criticism. So I'm allowing for the two to exist. Um, I am not choosing to set a standard um, because, I mean, one of my favorite, fa my favorite book of all time, um, uh, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, when Howard Rourke uh, says, you know, I stand at the end of no tradition, but perhaps the beginning of a new one. And I think that very much is identifies that that in itself is is the form of of who I am. Mm. And I and I always say this and people will sort of knock me to the ground for saying this, but it, I really believe it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And so I will continue to do so until I do so no more. So a, a few things, again, to synthesize what I heard, I, I like the word that you used, carving, mm -hmm. that you are carving out, you know, am I able to carve out a space, which is very much what you were doing. It's almost like this internal struggle in, in this this series of artwork. Mm -hmm. um, it was you literally carving out and saying, what is inside me? Is this what I was created for? Is this is what I was cut out for? And you Cut might, out for? <laughs> cut out for. Yeah. And maybe I'll go past this layer of paint in my mm -hmm. life and this will no longer excite me. I'll find something deeper there within me of who I am. Mm -hmm. And then you also said something. You said that you're doing it. You, you chose to go on this path mm -hmm. and you've done it from a place of privilege. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about that. You have another piece. You, you're a poet of am i well you are <laughs> right i was gonna say I, of sorts but i was like well no you are thank you so, very much so you're you know you're a poet you're you're a writer as well and you have a few different uh poems that you've tied with visual narratives mm -hmm. one of them is this whitewashing mm -hmm. and you've mentioned earlier this you know even here in the uae that a lot of it's this jockeying for privilege and power mm -hmm. and position this leads to my question. Do you feel like you're at conflict within yourself to be doing what you're doing, as you've said, from a place of privilege, while at the same time deconstructing that very privilege that you're operating out of? It depends, because when you talk about privilege, from what parameter are you... I didn't use the word, so I don't know. What parameter are you... Well, for me, I think for the upbringing that I had, the fact that I was educated uh, predominantly in the West and very much lived within this kind of, um, uh, within this, in a social class or in a social tier that allowed me access to people, places, um, mm -hmm. you know, all, 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 everything in between. Totally. Um, I have the knowledge, the power the finances, um, the intellectual stimulation, and the understanding of the world around me to operate within that sphere. Yep. So 1,000% I am in a position of privilege. And I've always said so. But I think here, privilege is a very um, enticing word because 
at some t- sometimes people don't realize their position of privilege and choose not to speak from that position when they are inherently occupying that space. But I think you do yourself a disservice as an artist if you fail to recognize that position because it weakens your position as an artist to what you're trying to communicate. What leg do you stand on? Totally. So um, for me, I mean, very much is. Like I, you know, for example, a, a, a place that you can unpack is the way that I speak. I speak about white male supremacy or talk about this notion of dismantling the West and neocolonialism, yet I speak with this accent. So people can go and say, well, you were educated in the West, honey. So you are very much trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, argue or um, break down uh, or dismantle the, the, or decolonize these institutions that you were educated in. Um, and for me, I by no means, um, once again, are uh, uh, putting a harsh line of where I stand. I'm very much providing a narrative or a counter-narrative to the existing narrative. When I speak from my own position, I try to speak from a neutral perspective, but mm-hmm. I try to provide um, an avenue to which someone can relate to or we can have this kind of echoing conversation. But then again, if I don't use words that are triggering or that are divisive, it be it the conversation does not bring forth those um the level uh, of di- the dialectic that needs exactly, to take place. Exactly. And I think, you know, I even think, for example, you know, I, I've had loads of, of loads of letters. Um uh, during the time of the Lessons Project that started where the women, and they write, they have been, you know, sexually assaulted by these men, but they don't even identify it as rape because they don't understand the line of consent because they're under- they were raised in an environment where they shouldn't question what is what is isn't consensual just because of the way that um, the culture has, um, you know. So, so I understand what you're saying. And here's yes. a tangent question. Sure. And maybe it's a little bit of a provocative question. Well, that's what we're, that's what we're here, here to do, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> um, wouldn't, wouldn't those who, going back to colonialism, mm-hmm. wouldn't kind of the, the colonialist white savior idea mentality step in and say, we need to then fix this part of the culture because these women are being oppressed. Isn't that a very colonialistic idea? Whereas probably there's there's the other side that's like, well, we're just going to stay out of it and we're going to let them deal with it. Um, yeah, but then how does that work in the West? I mean, how is everything going with Harvey Weinstein and with Brett Kavanaugh and all of the, I mean, it's a universal issue. Well, that's what, that's what I mean. But it seems that that we're, you know, I have this perspective that when, because it's going back to, are we, am I, are we, because you also come from a place of privilege from the The royal we, darling, the The royal we. The royal we. Those who come from, quote unquote, place of privilege, because we do, from the West, Mm. with a Western education, are we, in this conversation, are we superimposing our 
cultural worldview, the way that we see uh, healthy, and I think rightly, healthy relationship, consent, rape. Um, <laughs> consent should be part of the equation, yes. It should be, right? <laughs> right, so like, so I, this is where I, the real question is saying like, is that, where's the line between colonialism in your mind and actually like helping a society? Because I would definitely make the argument that that is nowhere, anywhere, shape or form colonialism. I hear a lot of people, yeah. I have a lot of people talking about um, or posting things about, oh, how the West just totally destroyed culture here. And I get tripped up and I'm like, well, infant mortality has dropped. All of like you're you're sending that message on a phone, you know, which is came from technology innovation in the West. We have medical systems here, roads here, education, healthcare development. Uh, you know, none of us would trade our lives with a billionaire from 150 years ago, right? If you said, "Would you rather be where you are today or a billionaire 150 years ago?" We would all pick today because their kids died from simple bacteria infections. So my question to, to bring the question to a point, how do we part and parcel the, the negative aspects of quote unquote whitewashing with technology innovation that when technology comes into a highly complex system, those systems change, but those technology innovation in this region has done a lot of good even just on basic like infant mortality and going to things like we're talking about now about the way that some guys will be like well maybe she likes that sort of thing like i don't think anyone likes being gang raped by five guys and beat up like yeah. that is like i almost punched the guy when he said that to me mm -hmm. but where where how do you part and parcel those things where there's you're actually doing helping marginalized people in a society versus, well, you're just coming in with your colonialistic ideas? Well, that's a very loaded question because you can unpack it from so many different points of entry. <laughs> so I was just, in my mind, as you were asking that question, it I was like, question? it's a great it's, question. It's something that we need to ask and think about, right? But I think when you, because that question was a tangent from the, you know, uh, issue from the le the 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 question that arose uh, from the Lessis project, but because it's going back to a larger story arc that we're but talking then again about. larger that that's the that's the the both the uh, blessing and the curse in this situation mm -hmm. that it's larger because you're looking at it from an, an overarching perspective. This person is looking at the minutia. Yes. So for us, the devil is in the details because we fixate on certain things that we've experienced and they trigger moments and, and deficiencies in our lives. And that provokes this conversation of colonialism. Like, you you know, you didn't need to save me. I didn't need saving as a, as a, as a person, of, as an Arab, as a woman, all of that kind of stuff. And so it triggers all these ancestral thoughts that have been embedded in our very skin. I mean, we are literally wearing our ancestors and we are also the same time a product of survival. We yes. are people who have... Completely. So, Completely. so those, those little um, 
um, moments that happen or these fract- fractions that happen within conversations or dialogues, they leak into these perspectives that we have about colonialism or imperialism or whitewashing or whatever the case may be. And from my perspective as an artist, because once again, it goes back to my perspective, because I cannot speak or advocate for anyone's position but my own. That's why you're on um, the show. Well, that's a try. <laughs> I'm here till Thursday. Well, I'm not, but you know. Um, it's, it is a discussion of when people piggyback um, uh, uh, piggyback on the cultural nuances that we have and redefine it, d- define it so it's easily digestible for them. That is when it becomes a problem. So, for example, when I talk about, you know, you, you know, I don't know, like um, how people view Emiratis within society. It is the the media pers- pers- perspective of how they think we should be pr- presented or um, uh, or perceived, um, but it's not the actual representation. It's not the entire demographic. There are sub categories or sub-definitions of what an Emirati looks like, sounds like, acts like. And that is why the vast majority of people within the Letters Project really resonated with the half-Emirati story because... Most, it seems like, yeah, there's so many half-Emirati stories. There's a lot. And and the funny thing about it is that... It's very fascinating. It's, It's like addicting. I can't stop reading. Well, are you saying that from a perspective of like... (laughs) I'm saying it from a perspective that as myself, growing up as a third culture kid, Mm -hmm. that I, I, in many ways, I relate to aspects of their identity crisis as I find myself living here, feeling much more at home here than maybe in an American culture because I'm not fully American culture. Whereas here, everyone kind of comes from this mixed culture. So I feel I have a greater resonance. So I'm not reading it from a, this is fascinating, from an an American, you know, imperialistic culture. But it's more so I also resonate and identify with some of these struggles on a different level. But I think, uh, and yeah, and I concur with that. But I think it goes back to, I think... The term that I will use now, because I think it's appropriate, is othering. Mm-hmm. I so, like that. So in in this position, in this context, there is a lot of othering that goes on um, because people feel that there is a threshold to which Emiratis exist on that threshold. And it and you, depending on your family and how if you don't meet all the right criteria. Yeah, then you are either more pure or less pure yeah. in in relation to what the social structures are yeah. in, this, in this country. So, you know, there are Emiratis that are, you know, originally either Arab or Iranian or, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Omani or whatever the case may be. Um, and those... And those different stratifications mm-hmm. of Emiratis create this inner struggle within the community to redefine themselves because it goes back to this idea of like frozen nostalgia. It's like, okay, okay, 
society is moving so quickly, rapid pace, people are like coming in, we are a minority in our own country, how do we define ourselves? Quick, 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 let's figure out the key messages that we want to communicate and also how do we look like, sound like. Uh, and how do we do that in 40 years? Exactly. But there is this need, this this fear of letting go of what culture used to be in favor of what's happening now because we want to protect the integrity of what our identity is, which is why this frozen nostalgia keeps echoing in in society, this perpetuation mm. of like how we look like on TV, the falcons and the, 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 the camels and the sand dunes. And there's a lot more that happens outside. And then the broader picture of like gold, there's gold everywhere. There's, you know... Uh, a, a, a sim symbol like icons of burkas and there's this and there's that and they think that by cementing these ideas and encapsulating them and freezing them within um this fast moving oversaturated society we somehow protect the integrity of our identity but that and and you're to clarify so just so i can understand what you're saying you are not saying that it was a western imperialist colonialist that has branded this city or this nation that way, but it's people within through trying to preserve their cultural identity? No, I think it's people preserving their cultural identity and then the West picking up the trappings of those um, um, uh, like nuances, as, as we, nuances is like the word of the hour, um, and then um, over um, exposing them and over embellishing them for the outside west, or inside the west to digest and that's kind of where the colonialist uh, mentality comes from this idea of like i will i will validate you and your existence so it's easily digestible for my people to understand you so when you're talking about colonial this is helpful because this is something i was confused about and so thank you for answering these questions because I feel like I'm coming to a point of some clarity yes. in my own personal life. So to understand what you are saying about colonialism and imperialism, it is not the coming and helping society. It's not the coming and, you know, demolishing the infant mortality rate. It's not the coming and helping set up infrastructure in a city or anything like that, or education system. It's That is not the imperialism or the colonialism or the whitewashness that- I'm discussing. That you're discussing. Yeah, that's not what- You're discussing the then, the, the reframing of the Arab, cult, quote unquote, cultural narrative. Oh, the Emirati. The Emirati cultural narrative, cultural narrative yeah. by- by and large media corporations to reframe and communicate that back to other parts of the world, whether it's China or the UK or Canada or America, it is that reframing in a kind of taking those aspects of that culture has held onto because they're holding on to their cultural heritage, but then the media has reframed it into this is who they still are mm -hmm. kind of in a and freezing that image of emiratis even though emiratis are vastly diverse and ever changing 
And it's that recommunication in a way that's sterilized that that is the imperialism and colonialism that you're talking about. And also it's this, um, and once again, it goes back to othering because at least uh, my friends. That the colonial, that that the media is making Emiratis othering or you're saying within. 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 Within society. And the the reason why I say this is, for example, most of my friends who are Western that live here if it's not for work sake, they don't associate with Emiratis. It's the, the there are two separate cultures that mm-hmm. exist other than the other cultures, because it's, I mean, we are a minority in our own country. There's so many other cultures that exist, so many nationalities that exist. It's amazing, but there is no sense of integration. That integration only comes by way of, you know, working to serve a, a certain purpose or goal. Yes. For argument's sake, that is a generalization, but this is but we but for the for the purpose of this discussion, that generalization needs to be in place yeah, because yeah. there that. there are so okay. We we have this in our culture, and it's not because once again, for example, this idea of um uh colonialism or or whatnot in the news, in media. On the radio, when they refer to Western people, they refer to them as expats. Mm-hmm. When they refer to people who are Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Filipino, they are immigrants or they are labor workers. Check the news. Yeah. And no, those perpetuated terms were not of our doing, they were of their self identifying that I am an expat. And this is how I identify within this community. Therefore, that that term, you're not an expatriate because you come into this country and you are serving a, a purpose to have a higher standard of living, a better quality of life, just a, a different experience, uh, all in all. But when you make that argument, you can serve that argument better with people who are from the Desi community or F- uh, Filipino or whatnot, they, they, by being an expatriate, you come, you serve a purpose and you leave. And that's it. As an immigrant, you come and you settle in that, in that space for a long period of time. So if I was a, as, a, as an expat, as a, a woman who is like from the West, if I come here, I stay in the UAE and I've lived here and then I die here, I am therefore on my deathbed an immigrant. Mm-hmm. But they would never identify themselves as an immigrant. That's one. Number two, uh, an, an Indian worker here who has a contract to only be here for two years and then go back, he is more of an expatriate than someone would identify a Western person to be an expatriate. So there are these social slurs that exist that seep into conversations and dialogues that we have with each other, within, and we are we continue to perpetuate those terms. Like I refuse to call somebody from the West an expat, the, an elitist term that was used during the always, colonial. Un, uh, expat is elite. I always feels like it's derogatory. Really? And yeah. that's interesting because I always think it's used as an elitist term to self-identify mm. as like, I'm an expat and this is my expat, you know, ways. I, I'm, I'm from a position of privilege and I'm, come, I'm coming here with my skill sets and expertise to educate the masses and then I should leave and do my, you know, and, it, and to, to, to use that term um, and then 
for, as a position, as a as a sort of a um, as a Western person to say that as I'm an expat and identify as an expat, and then to call those who are Indian labor workers as not just labor immigrants, then they take these terms and they add them, add negative or positive connotations. From my perspective, I've seen expat used as a high regard and mm. immigrant considered as like a social slur. And so mm. when when you use these things that were not perpetuated by the Emiratis or the local community, they were imposed by the West, the, that's when issues become a problem within the sphere of like identity politics or cultural nuances or whatnot. So, so from your experience, the segregation between quote-unquote expats mm. and Emiratis, or I, I normally say locals, mm -hmm. that is... That has, you're saying, that has been, in your experience, been, been perpetuated by the quote-unquote expats of them isolating and segregating to their kind of cultural, what's culturally safe or normal mm -hmm. to them. You're mm -hmm. saying that the segregation has happened on that side. Yes. And then also this term local. This is not a term that Emiratis like self-identify. Mm -hmm. They'll say, I'm Emirati. Um, the term local was given by the West to, right. to differentiate the community. Like, this is a resident. This is a local resident. This is an expat. This is a this. This isn't that. So then you you adopt these words. Like, I I laughed hysterically when I was in London um, in a... in. I think it was like, I can't remember where it was. It was like Selfridges or Harrods. And the woman asked this this Emirati man, where was he from? And he was like, I am local. She goes, wait, what? And he's like, I'm local, local. I'm obviously, I'm local. And it's because it, it becomes this like self, this way to self-identify. And it's like, well, just go beyond that. Like what? No need to perpetuate. Like for example, in society, since we go by the patriarchy, triggering word, um, we follow the male and we follow the father's um, last name and we take on the family, the father's identity as well as the uh, nationality. It was by way of the, the father, the lineage of the father. Mm -hmm. So in the society, I am um, Emirati. That's it. I'm just Emirati. But I don't identify as that. I identify as half Emirati, half Syrian. Um, and someone would see that as a very... Um, uh, like uh, uh, like a uh, like a very um, divisive way of identifying myself because, and and I can share an experience which might give a oh these little anecdotes are a part of the I think why you yeah, invited me here. Are great. So, I so love anecdotes. I um I had an interview. This is very very early on in my um in my I guess creative career. If you call it that, um, existing as an artist in the UAE. This is in Dubai. And I um, I, I had a video interview um, and this man from, from an Arab, I guess, news channel, he was Emirati, wanted to interview me about a project that I'd done uh, many years ago. And so he, he, you know, brought the mic to, to my face and said, so, you know, just tell me, you know, your name, um, a little bit about yourself, like where are you from, like all these kinds of things, knowing that I was Emirati. But and so I said, 
you know, my name is Sarah Alagrubi. I'm, you know, an artist and uh, I'm half Emirati, half Syrian. And he stops me and he goes, um, we don't have this in our culture. You're not half Emirati, half Syrian. You're just Emirati. And I thought to myself, well, no, I'm half Emirati, half Syrian. Like, that's who I am and that's how I choose to self-identify. So I don't understand why I'm, you know, being forced to make a claim because then people make the assumption that, you know, I'm not originally Emirati or like I'm, you know, God forbid, I'm, you know, you know, not really Emirati. I'm just faking it and I'm just, you know, piggybacking on the benefits of being Emirati. You know, but you're saying, but you're saying that, you know, I hate to use the word because it comes with so many. Here we go. Bring so, it on. So many, uh, so Dr- much baggage drama. that I do not like. But what you're saying is that the quote unquote patriarchy, which comes really stems from a lot of religious beliefs and Islamic cultural beliefs, beliefs and yeah. cultural beliefs, you know, within Islam. No, because Islam advocates for equality amongst. I'm talking about the the family, about okay. the family name, okay, right? yes, in the family heritage, yes, yes. So, so within that, there is a quote unquote patriarchy that is then engulfing the feminine identity or the feminine nationality and homogenizing your. Syrianness, you're yes. half Syrian, homogenizing that and saying, no, your mother's background, her ethnicity yes. has been swallowed by yes. your Emirati lineage. Yes. And that is the the patriarchy that you're talking about yeah. in this situation. Yes. And so, um, and that becomes impre- incredibly problematic because... I do not need to self-identify to cater to his understanding. I identify myself as myself, so I don't need to fall within that sphere. But society puts these um, microaggressions to their own community to feel the need to remove themselves from anything that makes them unique or individual within the sphere of being local slash Emirati. So I feel like even having these conversations, I always have to think about or catch myself in the sense that like I come from, as you said so eloquently several times, that a position of privilege, a unique perspective and an individual viewpoint. Um, so my experience is might not be shared by the masses. Which is clear from the Letters Project that you're doing, which I started, it showed up on my feed maybe a week ago. It's December 1st now. And I probably found it like maybe a week ago. You had probably just 600, 700 followers at that point and maybe about 40 posts. And within the last week, something seems to have happened yeah. where every, on my feed, every post seems to be a new post from the Letters Project, and you now have like almost 200 posts, I believe, I think 207. That, I think now it's like 220, but I know that we have like 250 letters. And like probably over. 1,900 followers. So within yeah. a week, you've grown 
just like started to, I think it's just the start of the tipping point. Yeah. But when you read, when you read those narratives there, some of them are so conflicting and a lot of people are kind of pivoting off one another. And in the previous conversation that we had leading up to this interview, you know, we were talking about how, okay, this probably isn't an, a fully accurate subset of, or a sample of society at large, of but it is an accurate sample of a specific minority that have that are uh, acutely feeling whether it's uh, oppressed or victimized or not have a level of equality or othered. They've been othered by society who have this platform all of a sudden to um, anonymously share what they've always been thinking and feeling or having those conversations with others in closed rooms and they finally found a channel to put it out there. Yeah, I think that that's what it is. They found the artery to which they can move through all the sort of bells and whistles and and um, and uh, l- limited points of um, uh, that were seen as like almost barriers that they couldn't cross. And I think it it has everything to do with the fact that the letters are anonymous. Oh, yeah. Um, I which, think... But, which at the same time, the so the interesting thing about posting with anonymity is that not only does it lend to extreme vulnerability and honesty, but it also tends to a level of distrust. Definitely. Sorry, I'm just going to apply this. My lips are chapped. Yeah. Because there's boys and girls out there. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay. It lends to a level of distrust because then you're like, okay, well, you're expressing your your feelings that are unchecked without any sort of reason. Or like, we we can't, you never really know. Is this just a momentary feeling or is this your whole existence? Yeah, but... But I do think it, it it's at least the tip of probably a much larger um, iceberg. Oh, definitely. That is in the cultural. Definitely. Narrative. And I think what's interesting about it as well is that um, the letters echo or trigger something within themselves mm. to feel compelled to write a story. So a lot of the time I see that there's these almost. Um, unspoken patterns of writing, whether it be by technique or by subject matter. So at times people would, there would be a wave of of somebody discussing their encounter with non-consensual, um, uh, just uh, sexual assault or whatever the case may be. Um, and then that would trigger a wave of, of about 10 letters that discuss some kind of sexual assault that has taken place for these, these individuals. Um, or, for example, there, I think it, it happened just recently where someone posted something that was written almost like free verse, um, where there was like, uh, or like a, a poetic structure of like five stanzas or something. I don't know. They, 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 there was um, a certain uh, linguistic structure or grammatical structure that they chose to write in and communicate in. And then that triggered like three or four letters that were more po- poems. Um, or had a poetic flair to them mm. rather than them being like a natural kind of prose. Uh, yeah, natural prose. And so um, 
I which think is interesting that going all the way back to the beginning where it's we are a mirror of society and society is then a mirror of us mm-hmm. and that there is this mimicry that goes on in all cultures, but to see that happen in a microcosm on that page is yes. very fascinating. And and I think also at the same time, um, people seek refuge uh, refuge in these letters. They yeah. They really seek refuge in these letters and they find solace or they find protection they find clarity for their own experiences i've had um several people send me private messages on instagram revealing themselves um and saying you know your letter really helped in my healing process or um this project has made me realize that i'm not alone and Mm -hmm. it's a recognition of humanity and a recognition of um the fact that we all carry the same burdens, we experience the same, you know, struggles and woes, and we go through the same tests and trials and tribulations. And it is a recognition of humanity. I know not all of these people are Emirati or women. There are men, there are people from all nationalities of all shapes and sizes. And I think the aspect of anonymity this freedom and transparency through anonymity has opened up an avenue for people to just um, connect with each other from a very human point of view. Mm. And I think that that is a beautiful recognition of humanity, a beautiful recognition of our sense of self. Um, But at the same time, these letters, which I find very interesting, is they often portray a very morbid sense of 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 life or these really sad um experiences and i wonder why that seems to be the the uh, trend is not the right word but seems to be the the general mm-hmm. um uh form of communication why does it always have to have a negative uh why is there a negative underpinning to a lot of these letters and and have i you think come to a conclusion on that i think it 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 boils down to the way that society operates. We are not really a society that communicates about our feelings. Once again, we glorify our successes, but don't necessarily highlight our failures. We don't come from a position of open and honest dialogue um, because you don't share or air out your dirty laundry. You very much keep up appearances and you remain with the status quo. And I think that is something that trickles into traumatic experiences or 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 issues that that people feel that they can't can't speak out about because it has to remain in the house otherwise it in will the house shame and on sometimes the not even in the house in your own right, mind in, your own, in mind. your own bedroom with your own thoughts and yeah. um because also at the same time you never want to give somebody an excuse to make assumptions about you so if you put yourself in a position where you are openly communicating this, uh, like an array of issues with a plethora of, of God knows what, you are leaving so much room for people to make assumptions about you and then to make assumptions that can be detrimental on mm-hmm. you and your family and society as a whole. Yeah. So I think that definitely plays a role in the Letters Project. And I've also noticed there there seems to be sometimes waves of rebuttal within the letters project that all of a sudden you'll have a wave of people kind of responding and saying, well, 
you know, there's there's been some waves of being like, I'm proud to be Emirati. And, you know, an Emirati passport has actually opened up so many doors and opportunities. And I'm mm-hmm. so thankful to this country and to this nation, um, which almost seems to be this, um, a person putting forth a rebuttal to the narrative of, you know, I've been made other as a, you know, of a, as a half Emirati, half something else that I've been framed as this other person and, you know, someone else coming in with a different perspective and a different narrative and seems to be um, kind of this battle of what, what's your viewpoint? What's your experience um, between individuals? Yeah, and uh, I, I definitely agree with that. But I also think it, it goes back to this idea of like homogenization or the notion of like standardizing the way that we should or could or would operate as individuals that belong to a certain community. Um, because for me, I came to understand, uh, I came to the understanding of what an Emirati is what a half Emirati is by my own my own making or my own um my own sort of like assumptions. Mm-hmm. And that's because I didn't grow up with it being a uh you know a, a a way of of othering me from a community. I didn't grow up feeling like, oh I wasn't like everyone else in in class because I I'm not fully Emirati. But I also think at the same time... And that is that due to your experience of not having yes, grown up here? Yes. And I think also at times, um, being Emirati is one thing. Being half Emirati, not fully belonging into a community, they raise cer- certain social slurs that get perpetuated through from generation to generation mm. because of this kind of social conditioning that we have within the community that in order to be fully Emirati, one must be pure, one must be uh, from a certain family of a certain status, and only then can you reach salvation. And I think um, I never thought being half Emirati was something I should be ashamed of. So I always found it very confusing when I would meet people who were also half Emirati that... uh, felt either they did not want to reveal that they were half Emirati because they felt like it would affect them negatively in society or that they had they were riddled with shame and guilt. Um, they were embarrassed of their family or their parents or their mother or their father. Whatever the case may be. For me, I, I wear it with pride. I'm so happy that I'm part of, of two different uh, cultures. And, um, and, I, and I love communicating that. That's very much part of my artistry, my sense of self. Um, it's how I self-identify. So I don't see any shame of it. And I and I always applaud people who do um, speak uh, from a position of, of, of pride when they talk about being half Emirati. I mean, I, you know, more power to you. So from the Letters Project, it seems like you're just hoping for people to begin to talk and think and engage not only publicly but within their within their friends about this in order to break down some of those stereotypes definitely and i think what's really interesting as well is that um when there was a wave of um women um 
sort of, I guess, coming out as being um, either sexually active or experiencing their uh, coming into their womanhood. Um, they a lot of uh, a lot of these women would actually send me private DMs on their original accounts, and that often doesn't that. Uh, that doesn't happen to me very often. Usually people will make fake accounts mm -hmm. and they will then come forward and say, by the way, I wrote this letter at this time. Can you either please delete it or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but I had, I think, maybe a total of maybe 10 women wow. that have come forward and have sent me voice notes, have sent me messages uh, saying, you know, yes, this is how I live my life. My family doesn't know this, but I'm, you know wild and free and I and I love it but also at the same time I'm ashamed and all of these different things and I always end up either asking them or they end up telling me without me asking the question of why are you telling me this and self-identifying knowing that I now know your name and who you are and they always come back saying you know you seem like the type of person that comes in with no judgment and that you're 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 not a typical Emirati, and then this is where it becomes divisive. Because I think to myself, okay, well, what is a typical Emirati? Because I know a lot of full Emiratis. Both parents are Emiratis, born and raised in the UAE, and they are fascinating, fascinating people with amazing um, minds and 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 unique belief systems, and just you know, uh, highly, highly educated and very inter very intellectually stimulated people. And so it is literally on a case-by-case -case basis. It's, it's you know, you've got you've to see how they, they kind of, you know, uh, how they come forward and how they see themselves reflected in the eyes of society. Mm. But then again, it's a double-edged sword. So people might think in their perspective what they think open-mindedness is that I embody what they think open-mindedness is but at the same time they're making a whole lot of assumptions about you too a lot of other ones as well and you know um but then that's just the nature of you know the, the name of the game that's just how we how we run how we operate the nature of being an individual huh a individual a individual an individual and a individual both <laughs> so to, to wrap this up thank you sarah Sara or Sarah, you whatever know, you want to call me, your you wanna, individuality is whatever it is. Um, however you self-identify. <laughs> yeah, My goodness. Um, <sighs> I like to, you know, the, the name of this podcast is Own the Future, which is this play on. Uh, it's kind of this double-edged play of the fact that we have the ability to create our destiny, to create our path in the world. That through our actions, through the things that we do. Um, we can essentially define our future, that we have the ability to shape society no matter where you are, you know, what position you hold, whether you hold one of, you know, power and privilege or whether you quote unquote don't, um, which is then played off of this, the idea of fate and destiny um, where in some ways you can't escape who you are. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't just yeah. rewrite your story. You can't just make your story up. There's there's this part that's already been written that you most are forced to trace out, but it's your option, your ability to write it or not write it, which is yeah. this I think a very fascinating kind of play on on fatalism and or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Freedom. What is freedom? 
so I, I like to ask, you know, what, you know, these people who are writing these letters, people who are reading these letters, people in, in your, has now become this, the letters project. And for UAE and Emiratis, whether they're full, whether they're half, whether, you know, their parents no, no, no. come from <laughs> India or Pakistan and they've been here their whole life. Mm. What would you say to them of how can they take action, take responsibility and own their future? What can they do, big or small, to begin to see the world and live in the world in a different way? Well, I'm a firm believer of, you know, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. And I think um, removing that sense of entitlement and that sense of privilege and divorcing yourself from those uh, preconceived notions of who you are and how you operate within society, only then can you examine or re-examine your existence. Mm. And goes back to what I'm saying, what I said in the beginning, which is you have to figure out how to carve a place for you to exist within society. Um, and I think also at the same time, opening those conversations, allowing for those conversations to happen, open up that dialogue, create those dis that kind of discourse um, is really important because it helps not just gain perspective on your own life and those, you know, and, and, and others, but also it positions yourself and strengthens your, your sense of knowing who you are and the person that you want to be. Um, because I think a lot of the time, I think we've we've had discussions about this before, um, perhaps in our in our uh previous uh conversations. Um I think it's very easy to address situations in life or social issues from a perspective that is um shallow and wide. And I propose that we go narrow and deep. Mm. And I think that is where we can start to really open up these conversations and create these, a new understanding and an active response to who we are within the community. What's a, pract like, what's a practical way to begin and start these conversations? Like, do we, do we go to our mom or dad? Do we go to our our friend, like how, what questions do we begin to ask within what group of people to begin to have this conversation? Like well, how, like what, like what if people don't feel like they're in a safe place or how do they find a safe place to begin to have this? So you have these platforms like the Letters Project and Banat Collective. And um, there's also, you know, the art, um, uh, space which has these conversations, Base 15 in Abu Dhabi. There are, um, you know, a lot of different uh, subcultures that exist um, and these self-led grassroots initiatives that exist from the cult from an artistic and cultural perspective. Um, and because they exist, you can find them on social media. They're loud and proud and they're there for um, to open up those conversations. But I was going to say as well that... Um, I was reading this book um, called The Art of Questioning. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, and it wasn't necessarily about asking questions per se in, in the process of asking questions, but it was knowing how to ask the right question. So I think for us, 
it's not, uh, I would invite those not to just to ask questions blindly, but to really focus of what it is that you are actually trying to mm. uncover. Yeah. And what is it that you actually want? Because, you know, a lot of the times people, at least with the Lessers Project, when you filter out everything that they're saying um, it, within the, the, the their stories, um, you start to, uh, when, and they, when they approach me on social media, um, after we get through the nitty-gritty of everything, it really just boils down to they just needed someone to talk to mm. or they just wanted to be heard or they just want to be loved or whatever the case may be. It always goes back to a basic human instinct. A issue, a deeper... Yes, and I think that, you know, when you ask someone to write a letter, you are asking them to actively decide what words and phrases and grammatical structures they want to create to convey a certain message. Mm -hmm. So you're almost putting them in um, in a really tight-knit spot to be very selective about what words they use. And so sometimes when I read these letters, I find myself focusing not on um, the letters per se that they use within those sentences, so but the structure. The structure or the spaces in between that exist. Mm. You know, have they repeated certain words? Have they, how did they start the letter? How did they end the letter? Um, you know, what are the key messages that they're trying to convey? And a lot of the time, I've come to realize that they just need to be heard. They mm -hmm. need to feel that their voice and their lives matter. Yeah. And of course they do. Of course, they have so much to contribute. Um, and they just want to feel like they are not alone. And I think that's why the comment section in the Letters Project is so active because people are resonating with these stories and they're going, yes, I experienced this too. I, you know, I completely echo your sentiment. I, I understand where, where you're coming from. If you need someone to talk to, please reach out. I've had countless people yeah, reach out to me on a regular basis, just being like, I can help. I know people. I have this. And so... The, the the nature of the project might, um, prom, uh, I guess, output negative waves of letters, like or negative letters with negative undertones, but the result is always positive. Someone always reach out, reaches out with a helping hand. Because the reason that they're reaching out with these negative undertones is because underneath is this probably deep seated sense of loneliness, yes. of not being seen, not being heard, not, not being seen. Like yeah, they're connected with. It's like. Will someone see me? Will someone recognize me? Does someone know me? This deep, intimate, scary, vulnerable, painful part of whom I who I am, can I put it out there and be seen and accepted? So then does it matter if we're individual or unique or homogenized or whatnot? Now we can just kind of in that way wrap up and say, you know, do you even, does it even matter when there's no sense of preconceived notion associated or affiliated to a letter? You have no understanding of that person. There is no, they are anonymous. They are, they are everyone and no one all at the same time. Interesting question. Mm. <laughs> do you want to do my answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I think, I think it's an interesting question. I think, I don't know, I haven't thought about that very much. I think we want to be known by name. Really? I think I think each and every one of us 
right? There's something so special and powerful about a name. Like, all right, it's like tied so closely in to our identity in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, because what we look for, I believe, as humans is is connection, connectivity, and intimacy. And intimacy, you know, Virginia Woolf writes a lot about this, where it's this, it's this place of being vulnerable and having two parties being vulnerable and both giving and taking from one another. It's this thing of exchange. And in order for that to happen, like there has to be some sense of like, I see you, I, I know your name, I see who you are, you're seen and you're known and you're loved and you're accepted. Because we can't be like... If it, if it remains as, well, I was seen and known and accepted when I was anonymous, well, with that anonymity, there comes so many other levels of like, well, what if they knew this about me? What if they knew this other part of my identity that I was half this or that this other thing or I looked like this? Would I still be seen and known and loved and accepted? So I, I do think there is a, a deep level in, in who we are as humans you know, just even thinking of kids, like my kids, like my, my, um, not my youngest, but my second, he's like about to turn, uh, he's about to turn two. Like he wants to be seen by me. Yeah. Like he'll come with something like daddy, like, you know, he's not really talking. He's like, ah, (laughs) but he'll like, I want to show me something. He wants, he wants to be seen and recognized. He wants to sit and read books. Like he wants that connectivity of, of a child and a, and a parent and, you know, married couples and friendships. Like there's all these different levels of that, I think, within our human experience. And I think, yeah, like who we are as, as, as a person, it matters. And I think that we all want to be, be seen, known, loved. It doesn't have to be by everyone. It doesn't have to, you know, like we're getting confused with, I need to be famous when really it's like, man, do I, do I matter to those key people? Do I have those strong, healthy relations? Do I exist? And I, do you, you speak Arabic, right? Yeah. Um, Probably not as, you know, it's rusty, but yeah. Do you know the word to forget? Nisait. Okay. Do you know the word for a human person? Nisan. Do you know what, and you know where it's derived from? I know the root is yeah. a noon scene in a. But what the word um, insan mm-hmm. is rooted in to forget. Right. So I think th- the idea that when we are gone, um, we cease to to be remembered. I think it's about contributing to society, in a, contributing in our time now in a way that cements some kind of purpose because we all believe like we have to serve some kind of purpose. If we don't serve a purpose, why do we even exist? Yes. But I think not everyone gets there. Not everyone gets to that space where they care to, to serve a purpose and to feel like something like the lettuce project or even these interactions of us communicating and me sitting on this interesting couch. So sorry. um, Is, um, is very much about, this idea of I exist within this moment and we're sharing this, I'm sharing this moment mm-hmm. with you or you're sharing that moment with your children. 
And I just think that when we're gone, we're just, we're gone. That's it. And, and we move on to the hereafter, whatever you believe in. Um, and so. But we, are we? I mean, maybe we do move on, but I, I, it makes me think of your painting mm-hmm. and that there's all these layers of hundreds and hundreds of generations before us that uh, we have to carve out to find, you know, what lies underneath because really we're a, we're a makeup of so many different mm. hundreds of generations before us and our DNA is, is passed on, right? Yeah. So I think there is... I fully agree of that of that deep thing of purpose and meaning. And mm. once we're gone, really like within 30, 40, 50 years, even the most famous of us will be forgotten. Like Picasso, like he's forgotten by and large, right? We remember some of his work, but do we Depends. know him as a... Well, we don't know him personally as a, as a, right, as as a, a person. You know, was he funny? Did he crack jokes right. at the dinner table? But we definitely... But he did leave his purpose. Like, he, he fulfilled that. He achieved that. He cemented his understanding of the world through his eyes. And then the result of that are his paintings and his sketches and whatnot. So in your capacity, for example, for you, it's communicating with people, getting to know people. For me, it's, you know, within my art. And maybe it might not be, but then also it's your offspring, it's your children. And so we live on in that cast mm-hmm. capacity and we live on in memory, but then when they are forgotten, so are we. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, but that's the the whole thing with that full circle to that. What was the name? I, I forgot the name of the the collection of those paintings. The, the layers, hundreds of layers of paint. What did I call it? Yeah, what was it called? <laughs> a glitch time repent. Glitch time repent. I like that. It's, but isn't that, you use the word cementing, mm-hmm. which to me, you know, it triggers that imagery of the paint sitting and cementing for a day, for a generation. Mm-hmm. And once it's cemented, there's another layer and that cements for a day. And then there's another layer. And even though maybe we're forgotten, Maybe somewhere down the line, one of our offsprings will carve and we'll have that little piece of our expression of who we are is going to be manifested in future society. Yeah. Right? I think that's what we all hope for. We we hope and we pray and we, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank your you for afternoon. having me. This Thank was you so much. A really surprising conversation. So I definitely enjoyed it. A lot to unpack. It. A lot so, to unpack. Yeah. So, Thank you so much. Sarah, for Thank me. you. All your information will be in the show notes for people. And I hope that you listening will go check out the Letters Project and write a juicy letter. For yeah. all of us to read. Letters out at the dot letters dot, dot project because everyone's had a name for everything. So <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Own the Future. Please go and check out Sarah's work at the binocollective.com, sarahelgarubi.com, and also on Instagram with The Letters Project, where you too can go and post your own anonymous letter and tell your story. But I strongly suggest that you grow and gain the courage not only to share your story anonymously, but to have the vulnerability and the trust within your friends, within your family, 
to open up and share your story with someone who trusts, who can see you, who can know you, and it can affirm you as an individual. I am your host, Lucas Robot. And remember, if you own your story, you can own the future.